This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense and his clear, open heart. In order to continue presenting these podcasts, we need your support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack and you can donate there or you can go through our Amazon or Audible affiliate links. And that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention. So tonight I would like to talk about compassion and its central role in the practice that we're doing. And start with a poem called The Sleepless Ones. What if all the people who could not sleep at two or three or four in the morning left their houses and went to the parks? What if hundreds, thousands, millions went in their solitude like a stream and each told their story? What if there were old women fearful if they slept that they would die and young women unable to conceive and husbands having affairs and children fearful of failing and fathers worried about paying the bills and women having business troubles and men unlucky in love and those that were in physical pain and those who were guilty, sleepless. What if they all left their houses like a stream and the moon illuminated their way and they came each one to tell their stories? Would these be the more troubled of humanity or would these be the more passionate of this world or those who need to create, to live, or would these be the lonely ones? And I ask you, if they all came to the parks at night and told their stories, would the sun on rising be more radiant? And again, I ask you, would they embrace? So as we get quieter sitting together in our retreat of two months or one month, we also sit in the midst of this mystery of our human life and human incarnation. 
that nothing can explain. No cool scientist, biologist, whatever, can really tell you how an acorn has 20 million years of memory in it and can create oak trees and all these forms and then become another acorn and how DNA does that. Nobody actually knows or where the DNA came from, for that matter, or your DNA where you were actually mud and dust and water and somehow you got up (laughs) or you came out, to be more accurate, and then you got up, right? I mean, it's bizarre. It is. Or the owls that you hear at night and the bobcats and the spirit of the Miwok who walked this land um, that's still with us because we're so connected. Completely mysterious. What is consciousness? Try it on Wikipedia or Science Magazine or Nature or something. Consciousness. Google it. See how far you get. Black hole not. (laughs) Nobody knows. I mean, you can know directly, but we live in mystery, the mystery of this universe. And as you get silent, you start to awaken to the mystery of this human realm. You see the stories that Trudy spoke about in the instructions this morning, the stories in that poem, all the myriad thoughts and stories and the visitors of fear and loneliness and desire and judgment and creativity. You know those creativity attacks that come where you're going to write your novel and choreograph your opera. All of those amazing thoughts. And you also see, as Winnie pointed to, the struggles, the suffering, dukkha, but that it's not the end of the story. When she spoke of faith, she ended by talking about a shift of identity, of not identifying with the mental confusion and the states of suffering, but that there is a freedom of heart. The Buddha said the freedom of heart is love. But as you sit and you pay attention, there are all the different states that come, pleasant and unpleasant ones. And part of what's difficult is that you see conditioning, the habits, things that you've learned repeatedly or that were entrained in your nervous system and consciousness over and over again, the personal history of your own loss and pain, Anybody not have? You can have your money back. (laughs) But also the cultural history of which you are, in which you are swimming. Am I gorgeous? My child asks, drawing the word out like pulled taffy. Yes, I say you are. The pink and teal dress is probably made of highly flammable material, some chemist's approximation of satin. Pudgy fingers decorated with pink polish trace sequins on the bodice. I love this. A giant pair of bubblegum pink wings flap slowly. Little feet dance in sparkly red slippers. I'm just like a real princess. Yes, you are, I say. 
curly hair, joyful smile, flawless skin. This child is the American epitome of beauty. This child, my son. He's four years old and prefers to wear dresses. Maybe it's a phase, maybe not. Even as I wonder how I produce such an angelic-looking creature, I wish he would put on some pants and go back to playing with toy tractors, not because it matters to me, it doesn't, but because I am already hearing in my head the name-calling and suffering he will face in kindergarten and for years after. Many adults already seem disturbed by the dresses and strangers utter awkward apologies when they realize he's not female. This culture wants little boys to dream only of baseball, trucks, trains. This culture has no room for little boys who want to be gorgeous. He picks up a parasol a neighbor gave him and opens it jauntily over his shoulder. Am I beautiful, he asks. I sweep him into my arms and plant a kiss on his cheek. Always, I say, always. It's hard to hear, isn't it? And yet we each carry the suffering that comes from what is imposed on this glorious, free, innocent, beautiful child spirit that was born in you. All the tyrannies of the culture and the homophobia and racism and expectations and fears. And so as you sit, as we sit together, I notice in the meetings with you, there are different things that open in this field of loving awareness. Sometimes they're the stories of the opening of the factors of enlightenment and there comes greater calm and spaciousness and more continuous mindfulness and joy is one of the factors of enlightenment and ease. Sometimes it's the first noble truth, baby, you know, and you get your personal trauma and your personal history and all the stuff that you're carrying that's unfinished, you know, and it gets deeper as you sit. And I know I just did my own retreat sometime a couple of weeks before coming here. And because I'm finishing the legal part of divorce, um, that's what I got playing through my heart and mind. And it was very painful. I think, oh, meditation teacher, he has it together. Marriage will all work out. We'll just be mindful and compassionate and we'll all be happy ever after. I wish, you know. But it's not that way. Sometimes you succeed and sometimes you don't, even when you give it a good try. Um, and so you sit and the conflict, as I did in the unfinished business, it says, oh good, she's quiet. He's sitting still. Hey, remember me? And that comes too. Or you see, as we've talked about, hmm, the judgment and expectation and self-hatred that you carry. 
And you get into practice as a kind of self-improvement project just because your whole life you were taught to improve yourself, right? Florida Scott Maxwell, the author, no matter how old a mother is, she watches her middle-aged children for signs of improvement, right? And so here you are, you know, the self-improvement project, thinking I'm going to somehow enough gym and enough climbing in the hills and enough metta and enough therapy and so forth, and I'll make myself better. Poem for you. When I read the Shambhala Sun or Tricycle, I wonder who all these people are. They admit to an occasional random thought, but it's clear that they're becoming enlightened or at least able to dwell in open space. Or those yoga journal people where everyone is thin, composed, and bends in all directions. <laughs> or fortune, where everyone's a millionaire, a captain of success. So where, I ask, is the magazine for failure? For 30 years of falling and only later remembering, oh yes, be here now. For the continued recovering from the storm, the endless repairing of broken sails. For this thick and heavy middle-aged body barely bending, for the immense gratitude in meeting once again next week's payroll, next month's rent. And so we have all these spiritual ideals about how we're supposed to be, and this is not a practice to make you better in that way. I'm sorry, you have your personality and your body, and that's what you get for this incarnation. It's tough, you know. And we used to think and teach that being mindful was enough. That if you were aware and mindful, that everything else would take care of itself. And it seemed like a good idea. It did. And we thought so. But then we learned that People could, we're a country that's misused almost everything else. Why shouldn't we misuse mindfulness in meditation, right? That people could misuse it to become clear and open and do the spiritual bypass, the spiritual end run or the detachment or not actually embody awakening. Or they would use it to judge themselves and be harsh and critical and use the practice itself to feed into their own unworthiness, in case anybody's ever noticed that. And so, as I said on the first Dharma talk I did, we really had to shift the way we're teaching in the West to include this stream of loving kindness and compassion as the basis for practice. Because the truth is that whatever level you are practicing on, however deep, you cannot open truthfully, cannot open genuinely without compassion. Not fully. Compassion is called the quivering of the heart when it touches sorrow, suffering. So one of the Brahma-viharas. And the quality of compassion is really metta or love when it meets pain, it turns into compassion. Because if you meet in yourself or someone else, somebody who's suffering, say, may you be happy? Just doesn't ring right, does it? May you be peaceful? I'm not happy, I'm not peaceful, I'm suffering terribly. 
And then instead the heart, when it meets this, there is a kind of mysterious resonance, a shared heart. It's not pity. Pity's the near enemy to compassion. Oh, that poor person, they're suffering. You know, and you feel for them like they were different. But it's like when you put a violin on the table and then have another violin in the room and play it. The strings on the other, on the violin on the table start to resonate in harmony. This limbic resonance that we have in our interpersonal field. And so when love meets sorrow or pain, it turns into compassion, this resonance. And there's a whole practice which we'll teach. Many of you know, may you be held in compassion. May your sorrow and suffering be eased, these other phrases. So if you have the slightest bit of struggling here, should it happen in sitting, or walking, or your work meditation, or in samadhi and concentration, or doubting mind. Try a little experiment. What happens when you notice the struggling, whatever level, if you add compassion? To see what happens. You can almost hear it and it goes, ah, oh, that softening, that opening, that liberation. And sometimes it's just this tiny little movement, the smallest way. I mean, you've become very sensitive. And I remember living in the forest monastery, practicing. And we were taught, the precepts of course, but we were taught to have a kind of reverence for life that Trudy talked about the first night when she, uh, or in her Dharma talk on, on the precepts and Um, It meant just taking care not to harm any living being. I like this poem from Lloyd Reynolds, the greatest American calligrapher. He writes, A bug crawls over the paper. Leave him be. We need all the readers we can get. (laughs) And there's this sense in the monastery that you step over the ants. You that life becomes precious and you become more sensitive to know it. But it's not just that life, it's this life too. And so sometimes you become aware of your own long-held tears and loneliness and sorrow. I remember a woman who was on a retreat in the desert in Yucca Valley who was having a lot of struggle with metta and compassion. And we worked for a series of meetings to talk about how she could just hold herself, maybe as a child, all the suffering she'd had. She said, my heart just feels so closed. You know, how could I feel this for myself or another? She'd been really damaged in her early years. And then I remember her coming in one day to one of our meetings and she reached into her jacket pocket partway through the meeting and she pulled out a hard-boiled egg and she said, this is my heart and I hold it in my hand and it's starting to get warm. 
And it was really, you know, it's such a beautiful symbol of holding the egg as something that's, it's springtime out there. I mean, the turkeys are going wild, you know, you saw that. The deer are having their babies. Everything is procreating like mad. You're a celibate, I know, but the rest of the world is kind of doing its thing, you know. And there was some way in which that place in her that had been closed for so long was starting to hatch or open just because she held this egg as she walked around for some days. That simple. Now, sometimes other retreatants and practitioners here will make you a good opportunity for the practice of compassion because they're insensitive or difficult or snore or louder. You know all the ways that they annoy you. And some of them, you know, certain of them. And I remember one year on this long retreat, a woman came into the meeting with me and she was quite frightened because sitting in the front row here was a guy who'd been a Marine and he had a lot of tattoos and he was this great big guy. And she sat near him. She had a seat near And he scared her. She'd had some bad experiences with men coming out of the military and her family life and things like that. And he kind of represented, this is something really scary. So she did a lot of practice with it. And she sort of tried to come to terms with this guy who was really scary. Okay. And then one day... At the end of the two-month retreat, we have an integration period of a few days where people are encouraged to integrate with words or with taking more walks or something. And she came on the first day of integration because she'd been so upset about him and didn't know what to do and so forth. And she said, it changed, it changed. I said, what changed? She said, the Marine. I said, oh. She said, yeah. I was walking down by the dining hill along the stream and I saw him and he was cupping a flower in his hands and smelling it and looking at it. And I realized he wasn't at all who I thought he was, you know, and then her heart just melted and she saw the beauty of this man. So sometimes you have all your ideas of someone that triggers you and they become the avenue to release that and see their life in a new way with the heart of compassion. Had a conference that I brought together, the Dalai Lama, and uh, it was on this work of um, all the people that are incarcerated in our enormous prison industrial complex two and a half million people in these racist poverty prisons, mostly. If you're born in the wrong neighborhood or the wrong skin color or something, you're likely to be on a train headed toward those places. You know, and seven or eight million people in this criminal justice system. So we brought people who'd been in prison Dharma projects and gotten out to meet with the Dalai Lama. Um, There's like 25 people who'd done long years and, you know, hard time in Oklahoma and 
state prison, but they'd all practiced and they got out and they were talking about how to do this. And Dalai Lama also brought a couple of nuns who'd been imprisoned in Tibet um, and gotten out and it was an amazing dialogue. But one of the women who was there, the people were just sharing their stories of how to turn things around. And she said she had been in there because she was an accessory to a murder. She'd been in the car when somebody robbed a store and um, shot somebody and then they'd driven off. And so she'd done 14 years in prison in, I don't know where it was, Arkansas or something like that. And she said, I got real hard because prison makes you hard. You have to defend yourself. And then we were in our cell, she said, and they put in a short timer, which we didn't like. You get your rhythms. And here comes this young woman and she's only in for like six months or something. We don't want short timers. And I said, you can, here's your bed. Here's your place. I don't want to hear nothing from you, you know. She said, and then after about two, three weeks, the woman started to throw up. Every day she would throw up in the morning and throw up. And she said, after about a week of that, I asked her what's going on. And I realized it was morning sickness. She was pregnant. And she said, I told some of the other women, and all of a sudden she didn't become like a short timer anymore. She became this pregnant woman. And people would sneak food and send it down the cell block so she could have extra food because she was so skinny. And They would send her the things. And when she got out, after six months, you know, two months later she had the baby. And she sent a picture back with someone and we put it on the wall in the cell block and all the women cheered when the baby's picture came in. She said, you know, sometimes the heart gets closed and it gets hard in here toward yourself, toward somebody else around. And we get afraid to let life touch this, Jogim Trumpa's phrase is this raw and tender heart. The raw and tender heart of the warrior, he said, the warrior of courage. To see with the eyes of compassion. But you don't know, really, when somebody is difficult, you don't know what they're holding. The man who cuts you off in traffic and, you know, is driving so insanely, but found out that morning that his daughter has cancer. You know, or the woman who's rude to you in the store who actually just got a slip to tell her she's got it laid off and her husband just came back from Iraq and he's drinking. You don't know why people are doing the way they are, acting the way they are. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, they're another human being. They're just like me with their measure of sorrows. Everybody, nobody exempt. I remember another time in the retreat in Yucca Valley, had a group interview, and there was a woman who was really silent and group meeting, and I asked her to speak, and she said, can't speak in a group. And I just said, well, let's be quiet for a little bit. We just sat quietly. I said, what's it feel like not to be able to speak? Trembling, she said, it's scary. I said, how old do you feel? 
five, I said, well, what made it so hard for that little four-year-old to speak? She said, oh, every time I'd say something, they'd say, that's wrong. They'd judge me. They'd come down on me. And I quickly learned, I just better not say a thing. They would say such terrible things to me. Shut me up. Everybody in the room got really quiet. They could feel it. It was so painful. I said, if you could speak, what would you like to do? What would you say? And she said, oh, I'd like to dance. I'd like to draw, paint. I said, oh, what would you dance? What would the dance look like? And she put her arms up. She said, I would dance like a fairy princess. So I went to the store later that day, to Walmart, Yucca Valley, and I got her a pad of paper and a bunch of crayons. And I brought it to the next group meeting with her. And I said, here, here's some crayons. Now you can draw and dance. And she took the crayons and she said, I can't draw because if I draw, they'll judge me. But what I can do, I can hold them. I can hold them and I can dance. So you become really sensitive. You become sensitive in yourself to what you hold, to your measure of struggle and tears. And you also become sensitive because we are like violins and instruments of humanity in being tuned to one another. And as the meditation deepens, sometimes what happens is the first noble truth becomes more visible. And you see the measure of sorrows and tears around. You see things impermanent everywhere. Nothing lasts. You take a bite of food and it's gone. You know, you have a moment's thought or feeling and it's gone. You look at the forest floor and it's covered with leaves that died and then there's new leaves and then they're going to disappear. And this relentless, as someone said in their meeting with me today, ever-changing river of life. And then you feel the fear. Well, how do I navigate this, the small self, the body of fear? Or you see how your heart carries the sorrows of the world. Iraq, Afghanistan, Sudan, Congo, Tibet, Los Angeles, Oakland, Washington, D.C. And when you see from the small sense of self, what's called the body of fear, it's like seeing with the reptilian brain, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. I have to protect myself. But there are other parts to you. And as you quiet and open, these become more available. The mammalian brain and the wisdom eye, the great heart of compassion. 
And you start to see this human incarnation with joy and sorrow, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, sweet and sour, day and night, birth and death. This is it. This is what you get. You start to see it and as the Sufis say, overcome all bitterness because you are not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you. Like the mother of the world, you're each carrying a certain measure of the sorrows of the world in your heart and called upon to hold it in compassion instead of self-pity. So you see it and you say, okay, this is human life. And it's got dukkha and sukha, joy and sorrow. And both are enormous, the ocean of tears and the vibrancy and exquisiteness and beauty of life. And what starts to happen is that you see this is the way it is. Your identity begins to shift from the small sense of self in a moment of loving awareness and compassion. You shift from my body, my feelings, my pain, my story, my family, my friends, my community, my country, my tribe, you know all that stuff, to the pain. It's not your pain, it's the pain of being human. To not my tears, but the tears. They're called the tears of the way then. The tears because we see the way things are. Not just your anger, but the anger of humanity, the pain, but also the love of it. And you start to feel the connection that is always there, that you are part of this web of life as you get quiet. So I was teaching with Pema Chodron in San Francisco a few years ago, a big evening talk at Masonic Auditorium. And we had 2,500 people or something like that on compassion. And after the Dharma teaching, we took questions. And one woman stood up. And her partner had just committed suicide a couple weeks before. It was really very raw. And she was young and just full of the tragedy of it and the emotion. And also it's very complicated when somebody commits suicide because you have all the grief, but then there's guilt. You know, what could I have done? And anger, how could they have done this? And every emotion possible comes up. And so she was shaking and all this. And Pema just talked about holding whatever was present in this big field of compassion. But I could also feel how lonely she was. How isolated. And so I asked, how many other people in this room have experienced the death by suicide of someone in your family or really close to you? And I don't know, two or three hundred people raised their hand or stood up. You know, eight percent, something like that. And I said to her, would you please keep your eyes open and look around? And I asked those who stood up, would you please just look at her with whatever understanding you have gained? And in a moment, the room became like a temple. It was so pregnant with mercy and love and compassion and wisdom and 
all the triumph of humanity, all kind of woven because we share it together. We've all been awakened with the Buddha and Kuan Yin and crucified with Jesus and killed with Stalin and served with Florence Nightingale. We carry all that because we're human. And we all are part of this vastness that opens as you sit and walk. George Washington Carver, who writes, How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong, because someday in life you will have been all of these. This is humanity. This is you. And as you practice, you shift from it being my pain or my tragedy or my family to realizing this is human life. You become wise. Because if you can't do it, if you can't bear it, well, here's... James Baldwin, he writes, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and fear so stubbornly is that they realize that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so if we can't bear our measure of sorrows and our own humanity, then we project it on somebody else, the communists, the immigrants, the Muslims, you know, the Mexicans, the, whoever it happens to be, you know, the targeted next group, the enemy du jour, because we can't bear it. So it turns out that it's a radical political act to be able to sit with your own full humanity. But then you get afraid that your heart isn't big enough for the ocean of tears for this world. But it's not true. You were born with the great heart of a Buddha, with the great heart of compassion. And it is in you. It is your birthright. And this isn't some kind of ideal passage from a book that seems very fitting for reading in modern times, somehow to get a laugh on the retreat. The book is entitled, If the Buddha Dated if he, had, if he went out on dates, right? Okay, here we go. This is Western Dharma in some form. And it's the chapter on flirting. <laughs> if the Buddha flirted, right? I wouldn't coax the plant if I were you. Such watchful nurturing may do it harm. Let the soil rest from so much digging and wait until it's dry before you water it. The leaf's inclined to find its own direction. Give it a chance to seek the sunlight for itself. Much growth is stunted by too careful prodding, too eager tenderness. The things we love, we also have to learn to leave alone. And there's something kind of intelligent in it, forgetting about the Buddha and dating, you know. There's something about the tenderness that starts to come in you as you practice, which is the tender heart of compassion. And it comes sometimes when things get tough. 
You know, not just when they're easy. I'm not sorry when it comes into meeting and somebody says, I'm having a hard day or a hard time with this. Interesting. Hmm. This is really, can be very, very profound. In the Jewish mystical tradition, one great rabbi taught his disciples to memorize, reflect, contemplate, and place the teachings of the holy words on their heart. One day a student asked the rabbi, why he always used the phrase, on your heart. And the master replied, only God can put the teachings in your heart. Here we recite and learn and put them on the heart, hoping that sometime when your heart breaks, they'll fall in. (laughs) And so what you go through here, sometimes magnificent openings, and sometimes the tears and the suffering, Not bad, all of it. So important. Now, your mind will try to trick you and make stories about how it's supposed to be and who you are and, you know, where you're going and how far you've come. It tells stories, as Trudy talked about this morning. And it's such a radical and wonderful moment when you can say, oh, the doubting mind, Mm, there's the judging mind, there's the mind of, you know, anxiety and the feeling of it. There's, you just see it, oh, with not just awareness, but with compassion, oh, there's the judging mind. And it's so liberating to have a moment like this poem from Ellen Bass, great poet, called Phone Therapy. I was a relief once for a doctor on vacation and got a call from a man on a windowsill. This was New York, 22 stories up. He was going to kill himself, he said. I said everything I could think of, everything. And when nothing worked, when the guy was still determined to slide out that window and smash himself on the indifferent sidewalk. Do you think, I asked, you could just postpone it until Monday when Dr. Lewis gets back? (laughs) The cord that connected us strung under the wildly busy streets, the pizza parlors, taxis and limos, women in sneakers carrying their high heels, drunks lying asleep, that endless coiled wire waited for the waves of sound. In the silence, I could feel the air slip in and out of his lungs, and the moment when the motion reversed like a goldfish making the turn at the glass end of its tank. I matched my breath to his, slid into the water, and swam with him. Okay, he agreed. (laughs) It's an amazing moment. Do you think... You could just postpone it until Monday, until Dr. Lewis gets back. Okay, he agreed. And we have that capacity of liberation and tenderness in a moment to see the mind do all its thing and instead to become the one who knows, to become loving awareness, to become the vastness that is our true home, the vastness of both space and great compassion. 
And I saw it so often in the monastery with Ajahn Chah. He could be really tough at times. You know, I was sick with malaria and lying on the floor of my hut and feverish. And he came in and he said, sick, huh? I said, yeah. He said, suffering, you know, painful, is it? I said, oh, I'm fever. I mean, yeah. Makes you want to cry, doesn't it? I said, "Mm mm-hmm. You know, kai ba, kai, you know, jet ba, jet you, makes you want to go, by ha me ba, once you go home to your mom, right? I said, yeah. Then he looked at me and smiled. He said, this is dukkha, this is suffering. Now you see it. He said, we've all had it, those of us who live in the forest. It's really hard, he said. But now there's good medicine. He was bringing some medicine. And he looked, he said, you can bear it. You can bear it. And he just kind of smiled and walked out after he gave me the medicine. And it was so beautiful. He just named it. This is what it was. And yes, I was thinking about going home, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Somebody cooked me chicken soup, you know. How did I get in this weird little hot way in the jungle in the middle of Southeast Asia? So if we're thinking of your mom, yeah. But I also saw him take, he could be really tough. And then I saw him take, you know, the head of a villager who used to come often to the monastery, whose son was a soldier who died, and just put it in his lap and just hold this man as he wept. Now Thich Nhat Hanh says compassion is a verb. It means not just resonating that, empathetic resonance of the heart, but it also means responding. And we'll get to that, I promise you, before the retreat is out. We'll talk about the embodiment of that in the ways that you do and can in the world. When President Obama went to Rangoon a couple of months ago for the first time with Hillary and so forth, And there he was giving this talk. It was great to watch it online, you know. And he was, had just come back from this amazing stupa, the Shwedagon, which is like the Eiffel Tower of stupas in the middle of Rangoon, this incredible, some combination of the Eiffel Tower and Buddhist Disneyland. I mean, the colors, it's just insane. It's fabulous. And he said, I've just earlier seen the golden stupa of the Shwedagon and the beauty and diversity of your country and have been moved by the timeless idea of metta, the belief that our time on this earth can be defined by tolerance and love. And I love the fact that the President of the United States says the timeless idea of metta, you know. And he went on and he talked about all kinds of other things, but Burma's having a lot of trouble because there are all these different conflicts in the different ethnic and tribal groups that have been going on for 60 or 100 years. And they said, I stand before you as the President of the most powerful nation on earth, recognizing that once, not so long ago, the color of my skin would have denied me the right to vote. And so that that should give you a sense that if our country can begin to transcend its differences, then yours can too. So real and so moving and so beautiful. Every human being within these borders should be treated with the dignity that we would wish for ourselves with metta. And when Trudy and I were recently in uh, Honolulu, we went there in part to meet and to hear Aung San Suu Kyi from Burma speak. And maybe she'll talk about it more, I might, a little bit. But she was, of course, very inspiring, dedicated, courageous. You know, she's just my age, 
67 and a half and born a few weeks different in time and this kind of elegant but small woman who had been 17 years under house arrest. You know, and she could have left Burma at any time. The horrible military dictatorship. Um, but if she did, they would never let her back. And she knew that. And she'd been elected to, she would have been the prime minister and then the military overthrew and threw her in. And she wouldn't go. She said, um, I will not go. And I will not hate you. She says her protection. Find it. Where is it? She says it so beautifully. Um, that her protection was that she never hated her captors. That that's really what protected her for all those years. And... Um, Anyway, there were high school students. She, one of the talks that she gave was to this group of high school students. And they said, when you got out of house arrest, what did you do? What's the first thing you did? It was a really beautiful dialogue. She said, well, you know, you'd think, they were wondering, like, did you go and get chocolate ice cream soda? Did you call your kids? Did you go to the mall? I mean, what would you, you know? She said, I called my political party. And you hear that, and it sounds a little bit like cold, right? But then when you read her story, she talks about how these are the people that if they uttered my name in public could be grabbed by the Secret Service, thrown into prison, tortured, you know, disappeared for 10 years. And we bonded so deeply as a family with so much love for one another. And it was through that bond that we began to love all the people in Burma, including even our oppressors. So it wasn't like I had to call my political party. She could, I called my homies. I called my peeps. I called the people that we've all suffered together with out of compassion that we could help one another. That's what we do here. That's what we can do on this earth. And there she is, this person who you'd think, you know, nothing you know, just being quiet in her little house there for 17 years. But I was riding in a taxi in Rangoon and uh, a few years ago when the dictatorship was still there and you couldn't even mention her name without, you know, somebody maybe getting, hearing it and getting thrown in prison. And the guy lowered his visor and on the inside of the visor was an Obama bumper sticker. Obama, Obama, you know, he's loved around the world. So I thought, okay, maybe it's safe. I'll ask him. I never hear anybody talk about Dasu. I said, I want to ask you about Aung San Suu Kyi. And his eyes got wide with fear. And I said, no, 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 I love her. And I worked for Burma as an activist and done these things. And finally I kind of convinced him he got. I said, but no one says her name. Have they forgotten her? And at the next stoplight, he stopped and he turned around and he looked and he said, never here. He put his hand across his lips. Always here. No words. This one little person in her house became the light of Dharma for 50 million people because she said, I will not go and I will not hate you. And she carried that. Never underestimate the power of the human heart of just one person who is awake.
When you look through that gateway, you see a force that makes the Pentagon look like children's toys. This is your birthright, the great heart of a Buddha. And no matter what level you feel your meditation to be or what the content of your experience, sometimes sublime and deep, sometimes with profound struggles, your birthright is compassion for your humanity, for this amazing incarnation. And it is as natural as your breath. So one last story for you. This comes from Barbara Kingsolver. And it comes, she was reading in the news in the Associated Press a few years ago about a group of people that live in Loristan in the far north of Iran in the high mountains. This, the, the, the people that live there are tribal people and they'd taken their herds up in the high mountains. And a young girl was, as villagers do, an 11, 12-year-old, put in charge of the little kids, and she came running back to the village in the afternoon and said, he's gone. One of the little children was missing. 16 months, 17 months. I looked everywhere, I looked everywhere. I was so busy tending the other seven, and then all of a sudden he was gone. And they got terrified, and they sent people up, and they called, and they couldn't find him. They went everywhere in the village and looked where he might hide, his favorite places in the tents and under things. And then a day passed and a night and they gave more frightened and they looked everywhere and then somebody said, well, someone had seen a bear. They said, oh no, not a bear, not a bear. But they had, so they said, all right, we have to look further. And they sent this party of men up through the forest a couple of miles to where there were caves to look. And in the caves... They went from one to another to another, and then they got to a cave where they could smell bear. And most ominously, they smelled it. And then they heard a cry, like a small voice inside, a baby cry. And they went really slowly and looked in the half-light of the cave. And there they saw not just the hollow of the cave, but this thick, dark, furry shape of the she-bear lying against the wall. And with the bear, they saw the child. The bear curled around. And then they said, what do we do? And they made, they got torches of fire and they made all the sound and they drove the bear out of the cave and grabbed the child. And she said, this isn't a mistake or a hoax. It happened. I read about it. I don't read Farsi or Arabic but I had people translate for me. I've looked and researched this story. The baby was found with the bear in her den. He was alive, unscarred, and perfectly well after three days, well-fed and smelling of milk. The bear was nursing the child. What does this mean? How is it possible that a huge, hungry bear would take a pitifully small, delicate human child to her breast rather than tear him into food. But she was a mammal, a mother. She was lactating, so she might have had, must have had young of her own, somewhere maybe who had died. So she was driven by the pure quality of maternity to take this small, warm neonate to her belly and hold him there gently. You could read this story and declare impossible, 
even though many witnesses have sworn it's true. Or you could read this story and think of how warm lives are drawn to one another in cold places. Think of the unconquerable force of a mother's love. The fact of the DNA code that we share in its great majority with all other mammals. You could think of all that and say, of course the bear nursed the baby. He was crying from hunger. She had milk. Small wonder. Thanks everybody for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support. And we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.